welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. Over the years that I've been making this podcast, I get asked one question more than any other. It's this What should I read next? Now, I love answering it, especially because getting to introduce people who love Golden Age murder mysteries to new authors from that time they've never tried before is one of my favourite things ever. But I'm limited in what I can recommend by what I've had time to read. And recently, it occurred to me that I have all these experts on the show all the time, and they often make recommendations in the course of our conversations. But since the show has been running for over a hundred episodes now, they're not always the easiest to find. Hearing someone really knowledgeable talk about what they think you should read and why it means so much to them is really one of the best possible ways to discover new books. Wouldn't it be great if all of those expert suggestions were all in one handy place for you to listen to so you could stock up on great mysteries for the next few months? Well, here you go. start with the work of an author who is controversial among some fans of Golden Age detective fiction. Gladys Mitchell is a bit like Marmite, I think. You either love her or you hate her. But for Lee Randall, my guest from The Great Gladys episode back in 2020, it's definitely the former. And there's really only one place you can start with Mitchell's work, Lee says. She is so funny. She just cracks me up. She's got a very caustic wit. And I I really, really appreciate her wit. And I appreciate Mrs. Bradley's rather sarcastic view of the world and the fact that nothing surprises her. And I also, I happen to, I'm a big fan of the Mitfords. And there's a kind of writing from early in the 20th century that I know is not to everyone's taste, but it's very much to mine. It's almost, it's almost very brittle. For example, in the beginning of Speedy Death, the characters burst into the scene and they start talking nine to the dozen in that particularly arch, now archaic style. And I am a sucker for that stuff. I love that. She came across Gladys Mitchell completely by chance when a package of reprinted novels landed on her desk at her newspaper job. So I took the books home. They were sort of random sampling. I can't even remember what the first three I read were. And I fell instantly in love with the language and with Mrs. Bradley, who I think is the most marvelous creation. And with Mitchell herself, I became intrigued. And I'm one of those annoying people who once I am intrigued by something, I start swatting up on it. So I would combing the internet trying to find out about Gladys Mitchell and trying to find out more about the series of books. And that led me down the detection club wormhole and all sorts of things started bubbling up. I don't want to take the edge off the shock you get from reading a Mrs Bradley book for the first time, because you should absolutely try one for yourself. But here's a small taster of what you could expect from Speedy Death, for instance. That book has everything. It's a locked room, cosy crime, country house, mystery with transvestitism and nymphomania and psychological shadows and light, and then a rousing courtroom scene at the end. It's got every single thing you could possibly have in a book. Lee mentioned a locked room murder mystery there, 
But if you want formal innovation and experimentation in your interwar whodunits, you could do worse than to look to the work of Anthony Barclay. Here's Martin Edwards, current president of the detection club that Barclay helped to found, recommending two of his books, as well as a bonus modern mystery inspired by him, from an episode titled The Psychology of Anthony Barclay from October 2020. It really was very influential. The classic detective story in many ways is the poison chocolates case with the multiple solutions. The idea of the multiple solutions was used a lot by John Dixon Carr, Christian Brand and other writers, but Barclay did it very brilliantly. And that was a book that was hugely admired at the time. And it inspired many other writers. But he also wrote the book which, as far as I know, I stand to be corrected, was the first murder mystery novel where the identity of the corpse is deliberately withheld from the reader, although it's known to the detectives. And so it's an additional puzzle. But who was done in? That's a book called Murder in the Basement. And you see that idea used successfully, even in very recent times, Lucy Foley, hunting party, there's an element of that story. And it's not just a whodunit, but there's a, a mystery about who the victim was. So that was an innovation which he's not had much credit for, but I, I think it's also quite significant. Anthony Barclay, I find, is a writer who comes up a lot when you're talking to other writers of crime fiction. Today, he doesn't quite enjoy the continuing fame of someone like Agatha Christie, but he is hugely admired by other practitioners of the craft. Another author that is pretty universally adored by the creators of detective fiction now and a hundred years ago is, of course, Arthur Conan Doyle. But if you're like me, you have probably been so distracted by all the gorgeous new 1920s reprints that are coming out these days and haven't actually read a Sherlock Holmes story in years. Allow Maureen Johnson my guest for the Young Sleuths episode in 2021, to explain how Conan Doyle sparked her own love of mysteries and convince you that it's time to return to 221B Baker Street. The first book I remember, full book I ever remember reading was The Hound of the Baskervilles. I had a children's edition of it. And I was so entranced by the first image of the reflection in the teapot that I, I for, that was it. For sort of for life. I was I was taken from that moment and I got my hands on every mystery I could possibly get my hands on. And I always meant to write a mystery and I didn't. I've written YA for, for years and years and I didn't do it because I think I thought it was too good for me or it was what I enjoyed the most and so I didn't do it. It's very hard. I think sometimes maybe we avoid the thing that's too close to the thing that we love. Speaking of teapots and tea, detective fiction can be a wonderful thing to read if you're feeling a bit peckish. As we heard from Kate Young, all the way back on the eighth ever episode of She Done It, Dining with Death. A pocket full of rye is a really good example of that. There's these extraordinary breakfast that is described and then a really lovely afternoon tea both of which are how the two characters who enjoy those meals, so the breakfast meal and then the afternoon tea, that's how they're murdered. There's poison slipped into tea and poison put into a pot of taxine from the yew berries and the trees outside that is put into the pot of marmalade. So it is a really grim and eerie look at food, which is supposed to be this 
warming, wholesome, comforting thing. I think particularly like lovely breakfasts at home and and an afternoon tea service in your library are supposed to be the, it's sort of things that you could just eat and enjoy that that happen every day. And suddenly, ah, the result of somebody getting murdered. It, it is a really interesting thing. And those the descriptions of those meals, because they keep returning to them and considering how that poison could possibly have been administered, it is really interesting to keep returning to that table and how it was set. Now, I know I said this was all about books, but while we're on the subject of Agatha Christie, there was a film suggestion from the archive we came across that I had to include. This is from queer studies scholar Dr. Benedict Morrison. And that's why, and I know that this is controversial, but that's why, for me, Albert Finney is the Poirot. I once heard his performance described as kabuki-like, and I think that's absolutely right. His performance is a bizarre kind of mashup of extreme gestures, of strange vocal inflections, of a very dodgy accent. But all of these things, actually, with enormous charisma and star quality, as Albert Finney, of course, brings, all of them are constantly reminding us that Poirot is not just a straightforward character, but rather Poirot is play. Poirot is instability. Poirot is enigma. Poirot is uncertainty. The moment when Finney pulls down his case and the kimono nightgown falls into his arms and he laughs and the camera pulls back and up and we're confronted with a moment of this near aerial shot of Poirot just laughing. It is one of the moments for which cinema was invented. I adore it. And it prepares us for the doubleness that Poirot eventually has to embrace when he presents two possible solutions and then effectively asks stage manager Bianchi, as he's called in the film, to decide which of those two solutions he should now go and perform in his report. Poirot is an actor too in Murder on the Orient Express. And for me, all of that play with identity, all of that play with star status, all of that play with the instability, the uncertainty and the non-essential nature of character, those things are all resolutely, wonderfully queer. And there'll be more on that after the break. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gurem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family, and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code-breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, 
about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use. And I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. If you want to think more deeply and perhaps chronologically about your Agatha Christie reading, there's an obvious place to go, the All About Agatha podcast. And in December 2020, I was lucky enough to welcome hosts Catherine Brobeck and Kemper Donovan onto the show. Catherine, as fans of the show will know, very sadly passed away in late 2021, so it's all the more significant, I think, that we can still hear what she had to say. Among many other things on that episode, titled The Christie Completists, we talked about the books that had consistently performed the best in Catherine and Kemper's very comprehensive and rather complicated ranking system of Christie's work. It's a bit rudimentary. I'm always, for some reason, a little embarrassed when we actually have to talk about our ranking categories because I think they're pretty basic, but we essentially break down each of the novels into some pretty standard sorts of aspects of writing and reading a book. (laughs) So there are five of them. And the first two have to do with plot. Plot is obviously key to mysteries and and to Christie. And our first is just plot mechanics. So it's, it's kind of the workings of the plot. How elaborate is it? Does she pull it off? Are the loose ends tied up? Is it all kind of working the way that it should? Often Christie's plots are just absolutely brilliant. Sometimes they're a little bit less so. She wrote 66 novels. So there's going to be some variation there. The next category is is plot credibility, which is where we tend to be able to do our nitpicking that I think mystery readers love to do, in which we talk about whether or not this mystery plot would actually happen in real life. And we do realize that verisimilitude is not necessarily what a mystery writer, and especially a mystery writer like Christie, is going for. Sometimes half the fun is that this never would have actually happened in real life. And the mechanisms of the plot are... Wait, are you saying, are you saying, Kemper, that not a bunch of random strangers would travel to an offshore <laughs> island via a random stranger's request? Is that not uh, typical with normal life? Because I've been doing things, I've been doing things wrong, clearly, if that's the case. Well, funnily <laughs> enough, I believe, I don't have the grid in front of me, but I believe that on, um, on Plot Credibility, and then there were none actually did quite well, because this isn't really spoiling anything, but the the murderer in that novel is a psychopath. And it's this outlandish psychopathic scheme. And yes, it's quite believable that the murderer would have come up with this plot and actually even been able to enact it and kind of orchestrate matters to get everyone onto that island. So yeah, I mean, we, we're, we're often kind of, I think, approaching that category with a little bit of a wink, but it, it is kind of fun to just suss out whether or how the plot would have, would have actually happened within real life. Then we have two character categories. The first is series-long characters. So that's often our detective character, especially if it's a Poirot or a Marple or a Tommy and Tuppence, 
or a superintendent battle <laughs> or a colonel race. <laughs> They're actually, you know, more series long characters in Christie than just Poirot and Marple. And then our second character category just has to do with characters within that specific book. And we're just in those categories talking about the strength of characterization. And again, I think Christie gets a, a bad rap for her character work. And quite often, I think she is superb in how she creates characters. And not only just creating characters on the page, but using character as a means of creating obfuscation and then ultimately solving a mystery. And I think in her very best mysteries, that's something that I think I've been able to clarify as a result of this project we're doing. You know, that is something that I think is often happening in the very best of her mysteries. Character is integral to the solving of the mystery. It's certainly the case in Five Little Pigs, for example. Evil Under the Sun is another one I, I often use as an example. I think also we love, also just like randomly, like we love Sad Cypress. And that's one I think that she's doing something truly original with with character work and structure and does not get enough credit, right? Absolutely. So Five Little Pigs, Sad Cypress, Evil Under the Sun. What, what other novels of hers have come highly in the system so far? Well, we, I mean, our top 10 consists of, and then there were Five Little Pigs, and then there were none, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, The Hollow, Death on the Nile is, is right up there. Orient Express, obviously. Murder on the Orient Express. The Murder at the Vicarage as well, is actually another another favorite, I think, of, of both of ours. Mm -hmm. And now from the best of Agatha Christie, to a writer sometimes called the Agatha Christie of Japan, Seishi Yokomizo. This recommendation comes from Pushkin Press editor Daniel Seaton. There have now been quite a few more Yokomizo titles published by them since we recorded this in March 2021. We just view straight away that it just seemed like a massive oversight that he'd never been published in, in the UK before. Pushkin have now published two Yokomizo books in English, The Honjin Murders, translated by Louise Heel Kawai, and The Inagami Curse, translated by Yumiko Yamakazi, with plans for more in the future. And the response seems to bear out Daniel's initial hunch that non-Japanese readers would love the Honkaku style. Well, the response to all Seishi Yokomizo's books has been really amazing so far, and especially The Honjin Murders. They got rave reviews... And it's been our best-selling title since we published it at the end of 2019. That's across our whole list, not even just the crime list. I wasn't really surprised at all because I'm a huge mystery fan myself and I absolutely love it. It's a really fiendish, expertly plotted mystery. It's packed full of all the elements that thrill fans of Golden Age classics. Pushkin have also expanded their reach into Japanese fiction beyond the 1940s and 50s and published in English work by contemporary crime writers like Soji Shimada and Yukito Ayatsuji. This is the fascinating thing about the Honkaku style, and where it really differs from what happened in Britain and America. Apart from a short period in the 1970s and 80s when Japanese readers seemed more interested in police procedurals and thrillers, the classic Honkaku puzzle mystery has never really fallen out of favour. I'm pretty sure that a few of you will have already read this next book, as it seems to be quite a popular gateway mystery for She Done It listeners, shall we say. But I just love this recommendation from 94-year-old playwright Renee from the Lifelong Fan episode so much that I had to include it. Perhaps the most significant literary encounter that Renee had around this time was with the 1935 novel Gordy Knight. Dorothy Sayers has always been my favourite because I think she can write. And she sort of talks about 
things that I that caught my attention. She talks about what a marriage should be, that that a woman should be allowed to work and all this, you know, follow her own career, those kinds of things, which I really, as a young girl, I was about 11 when I read, first read Gordy Knight and really interested me for some reason, which I don't understand because I was quite young. But I guess I was reading Vera Britton as well and Rebecca West. Now, long-time listeners to this podcast will know how much I love this book too. It's a mystery novel, although not a murder mystery, because it's more of a poison pen plot. But it's also a treatise about love and relationships and work, and how women can exist in between them all. When I was talking to Rene, we had so much in common when we spoke about how this book had shaped us, even though she's 91 and read the book quite soon after it came out, and I'm 32 and read it decades after Sayers had died. But we're both equally captivated by it, and return to it again and again. I'm so pleased. That is just so nice to know because I don't know anyone else who really does that. And there's something about you fall into that book that because it was the first one I read, I fell into it. And I don't think I've ever quite come out. Gordy Knight and the other detective novels of this time that Renee devoured at the library offered her a glimpse of a completely alien world. Here she was, a girl not yet in her teens who was working full-time in a mill in New Zealand to help support her family. And on the pages of these whodunits were lives and places that were completely unrecognisable to her. I was like a little gulliver looking in at these strange new worlds. I mean, there were places that had a butler and maids and all those sorts of things which I had never entered my sort of little world. And then Sayers, Gordy Knight was the first novel I read of hers, and she was at Oxford, which was fascinating for me, but I didn't know. I didn't know what a proctor was, for example. I, I, I found it, some of the terms quite difficult, but I was young. So I just read it mainly for the pleasure and the, the surprise of hearing people, adult people, actually talk about poetry or literature, and none of which I knew, but it was just another idea that that's, that could be a part of conversation. One of the most difficult Golden Age authors to recommend, I think, is Marjorie Allingham. Even though her detective stays consistent throughout her work, the style of her books changes so much over the decades. Here's her biographer, Julia Jones, from the Evolution of Marjorie Allingham episode on Finding Your Way Through This Maze. If you didn't know her, you would almost think they were written by different people, but it isn't. It's because one's a different person when you're in your 20s than you are when you're in your 50s. And with Marge, you can see her novels, and, and that's why she's very clever with Campion. Readers who try to get into Allingham by starting with the first Campion novel often find themselves confused or disappointed, I think, since her sleuth fails to take centre stage. It isn't until Allingham's next detective novel, 1930's Mystery Mile, that we get more of a sense of Campion as a protagonist in the way we might expect from a crime novel of this period. I mean, the next one, Mystery Mile, that's one I would quite often recommend to people if they like something quite period, quite flippant, you know, quite fast moving. That's a good one. And if you like, that's the first proper Campion, because 
championing the Clarence Black Dudley. It's just somebody else who happens to be in the house party. And for some reason, he just gets picked up and promoted to Mystery Mile. And to finish with, we have a recommendation from the very beginning of 2023. When guest Moira Redmond was so sure about a particular Dorothy Bowers title that she was willing to offer personal refunds to anyone who did not like this book. And then to cap off this productive period of four crime novels published in four years, in 1941, Dorothy Bowers published Fear for Miss Bettany, which Moira and I, and pretty much everyone else who's read all of Bowers' books, agree is her masterpiece. It has nearly all my favourite crime story tropes in it. It's got the lot. It's got, you know, a school, a hugely female population. It's very funny. But at the same time, there's this link with the town and there's a male fortune teller who just appears really only in one scene. It's an extraordinarily involving and entrancing scene. It's incredible. Most of the rest of the time, it's very much school setting, but again, sharp, funny. Miss Bettany is a great heroine. She's an older single lady and she ends up at the school. She's the person whose father was in trade. And I think it's a great book. Moira feels pretty confident about the quality of Fear for Miss Bettany. If you read that book and you didn't like it, I'll give you money back. It's such a good book and so unusual. It has features from similar to many other books of the time, but it is on its own, Fear of Miss Bethany. And there we have it, some of the books most fervently recommended by She Done Its guests over the years. I hope you found something new to try in there. Or perhaps you were reminded of an old favourite that it's time to revisit. Enjoy your reading. I'll be back with a brand new episode very soon. This episode of She Done It was hosted by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find a full list of books and podcast episodes mentioned today at shedoneitshow.com slash shedoneitrecommends. I publish transcripts of every episode, including this one. Find them all at shedoneitshow.com slash transcripts. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to hear more of the show, join the She Done It book club, where I make extra bonus episodes every month for supporters. For instance, I speak to lots of guests for much longer than you ever hear on the main podcast feed, and book club members do get to listen to those full interviews. Sign up now at shedoneitbookclub.com slash join. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese, production assistance from Leandra Griffith, member support for the She Done It Book Club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.